Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our fourth episode in the Ethics Unpacked series, and today we'll talk a little bit about good and evil and subcultures. So I always start out the class by sharing a TED Talk by Dr. Philip Zimbardo, and it's based off his book, The Lucifer Effect, and the TED Talk by the name The Psychology of Evil. In that discussion, He's challenging the notion that there is an impermeable line between good and evil. And this idea that there is some fixed position of those that are good on one side and those that are bad on another is a fallacy. It allows us to separate the good guys from the bad guys. But that's just convenient. The world, as he says it, will always contain some version of good and evil because, as Dr. Zimbardo argues, it's part of the human condition. In his estimation, evil is the exercise of power with intent to harm either psychologically or physiologically. It seeks to destroy people's morality and act in a manner contrary to our perceptions of human nature. And he's very clear that what he's referring to is not the small subsect of, pop of the population that is predisposed to acts of violence, right? Sadists. In fact, by most statistical measures, that only accounts for about 1% of the population. So he's talking about giving consideration to dispositional factors that influence individual behavior. More commonly, that's called the bad apple analogy, right? And we'd like to often think that any bad action is the result of an individual acting on their own agency with no influence from a larger institutional background. Of course, that leaves out a lot of key information. So if we were considering external factors around the individual, we might be using the bad barrel analogy. And that's the thinking that it's something in the environment that creates the situation that allows people to do things that we might term evil right, or bad. And finally, he extends it a little further. And he says that if you give consideration to the systems of power, such as legal, political, economic, or cultural backgrounds, then we might be using a bad barrel maker analogy. And in that, he's talking about the capacity for the overall environment to allow bad actions to permeate and then go unchecked. It is a TED Talk worth watching and a book I strongly recommend reading. But for the purposes of this, um, this episode, what we're focusing in on is his development of an idea that relates to how otherwise reasonable people can act in a manner that is completely confusing. Right? And he uses Milgram's experiment. Uh, so the experiment by Stanley Milgram, which is talked about in every Psychology 101 class, is really a focus on how blind obedience to authority has the capacity to influence human behavior. And Zimbardo argues that there is seven processes that enable otherwise reasonable people to make decisions that we can't comprehend. And he says the first step is always the small one, right? So it's mindlessly taking that first small step away from moral action, dehumanizing of others, deindividuation of self, diffusion of personal responsibility, blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms and passive tolerance to evil 
through inaction or indifference. The point he's making here, and the point that should be taken by everyone entering positions that have power and authority, that require them to use discretion, is that it is really important to realize that the first steps we take matter. They are usually small and insignificant, and the consequences or the outcomes of our actions are not you know, easily identifiable as bad or evil. In fact, in many cases, we might even understand why we do it, or we think we can. We think we can definitely justify our actions. But a big part of that process is being able to other people, right? To separate them and create an us versus them mindset. When you dehumanize or you other people, it makes it easier to not see them as an equal human being worthy of the same treatment everybody else gets. And then when you combine that with blind obedience to authority, when we surrender our ethical thinking and we uncritically conform to fit in, it definitely puts us on the path to bad choices. So I always start the class there. And the reason we talk about Zimbardo is that it leads well into a discussion about culture and subculture and the way our identity and our group identity sort of influences our actions. So to put some definitions to the things we're talking about, a culture is a pattern of learned and shared behavior within a particular society. Learned activity, uh, that is sort of, it's actively learned and passively learned through socialization. It's fostered by identity sharing and transmission amongst a group that is used as a defining feature. It's developed and internalized by recognition of similar patterns in social life through customs and traditions. And it almost always contains symbols and rituals and traditions that we follow. It's pervasive. We see it everywhere. We are raised with it. And many things reinforce it for us. By comparison, a subculture is a smaller cultural group within that larger culture. So people within a subculture are part of the larger culture, but they also share a specific identity within a smaller group. It is a self-defining group within a society which holds different values and norms than those of the majority. It doesn't need to be negative. It doesn't necessarily say that subcultures are bad. They're just a social fact. They exist. If you think about your everyday experiences, you will realize that you identify closely with subgroups within the larger Canadian culture. That's not to say that you're a bad group or you're an outcast group. All it's saying is that you have a particular set of values and norms that differ from the majority. The theory of subcultures argues that similar ideas tend to arise among people who experience similar circumstances. So it's easy to see how we can arrive at a place where we can find common ground with those like us. It also makes it easier to understand how we can look at other people and identify very quickly that they're not like us. Now remember, your identity is not a static permanent thing. It's, you know, it, it can't, there are some elements of your, of your identity that can be static and unchanging, but there are others that are definitely dynamic. So some things never change, right? These are things like ethnicity, skin color, sex, this, um, I mean, gender could change from what you were assigned at birth, but that is a different conversation. 
religion, the culture in which uh, the religious beliefs in the culture you were raised in, or the ones you might adopt later in life, right? Then there are parts of our identity that are dynamic, meaning they change and evolve. How intelligent you perceive yourself changes as you move through education and life experiences. What religion or lack thereof you choose to subscribe to in your life. Your socioeconomic status will change over time. And that changes how you perceive yourself. What you do for a living, who you associate with, what your hobbies are. These are things we use to create our perceptions of our identity. Our perceptions of who we are change as our dynamic pieces change. But they're all part of our self-identity. So we, other than self-identity, we also have a social identity, which is how others see us and how we want or don't want others to see us. How we define our self-identity matters in a social world because we tend to choose to be in groups or places or with people that align with how we see ourselves. We make decisions based on how we see ourselves. The crux of understanding identity is understanding that it is not real and tangible. It's more like an illusion. Anything can come along and rock that boat of illusion. Your self-identity intersects every day with your social identity. And when your self and social identity line up, we tend to be very content and happy. But when they are misaligned, we tend to feel uneasy, unhappy, or even depressed. Like ethics, our identities are created through transactions. That leads really well into the theory of social identity presented to us by Henry Tajfel. Henry Tajfel is a psychologist who brings us social identity theory which describes how social identity is linked to the groups a person identifies with. The group a person identifies with provides someone with a sense of belonging. It is the beginning stages of dividing the world up into an in-group and out-group, or an us versus them. Tajfel argued that stereotyping is a normal cognitive process caused by a tendency to group things together that are alike and it is exacerbated by overemphasizing the similarities within a group and the differences between groups. The central premise of the theory is that in-groups and out-groups focus on negative traits of the other group, and they do that to enhance their own self-image. The social sorting process falls into three broad categories or stages. The first is social categorization. This is where people tend to group like things together so as to create a seemingly coherent category or group of people. Then we move to social identification. At this stage, people start to closely identify with their own group and they internalize the identity and beliefs of that group. And finally, social comparison. At this stage, after sorting into groups and internalizing the identity of the chosen group, people compare their groups to the others and begin a process of othering where competition and hostility can become the defining feature. In many ways what falls from this is a tendency to label other people, right? It helps us identify who the good guys and the bad guys are, who the us and who the them are. And Howard Becker um, is a person that came up with something called the labeling theory. And he posits this criminological theory that explains secondary and tertiary deviance, but it's one that you can apply to many circumstances. So as a criminological theory, it posits that 
the labels we apply to a deviant person actually just gets more deviant behavior. It doesn't change or it doesn't lead to a change in behavior that is positive. People don't look at their label and move away from it because they feel shame. In fact, in many cases, it creates almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. When people accept the label they identified by, and then they align their behaviors with the preconceived and expected behaviors associated with that label. The labels placed on people by others impact their perceptions of the identity. The perception of how others perceive them ultimately impacts their decisions and their actions. Now, while this might not explain primary deviance, and it might help us get a better grasp on secondary or tertiary deviance, one of the takeaways for the purpose of you know this discussion is that labeling theory gives us a sense of how assigning a value, assigning language and a word to someone or a group can actually have a highly counterproductive impact. And that is worth thinking about before we use language without considering its impact. So how do we know how to do all of this? At the end of the day, all of these are elements of the socialization process. That's the process by which people are taught to conform to social expectations. Right? It's the process of learning and adopting and internalizing social norms and expectations. And it's developed through learned and observed patterns of actions, customs, beliefs, traditions. I always say it begins at your family kitchen table and it extends out from there. The process of socialization is continuous and it exists throughout your life. So where you go and what you do, how you interact and who you interact with all have an influence on your life's perceptions, on your frames of reference. Socialization is considered an essential component of ongoing social functioning. That's how we fit in. That's how we identify. That's how we associate. And while none of these things are necessarily negative, they're worth remembering because they have an influence on the choices we make. Now, bringing this talk back around to public perception and public trust, because at the end of the day, this whole focus on ethics is aimed or targeted at being a better law enforcement officer in the future. So this relationship that exists between the public and the police that is fundamental to police being capable of enforcing the law and protecting society, we call that public trust, as I've said before. Public trust is the trust that society puts on police officers to act in a way that is ethical, legal, moral, and just in the course of duty. Public trust is why witnesses come forward, why people testify, why we even call the police for anything. Without public trust, we would have nothing but conflict and clashes between the public and the police any time they leave their division. When public trust decreases, people don't come forward to give witness accounts of crimes. They fail to call the police when crimes occur, and they push back and can get aggressive, verbally and physically, when dealing with the police. The ability of police to do their jobs will be impacted greatly by public trust. The process of socialization provides people with an understanding of how the interaction between the public and the police are meant to be enacted. The theories of subcultures and social identity also helps contextualize and inform those interactions. It provides the means of understanding historical grievances or support, perceptions and identity. All of these elements are critical to understanding the lived dynamic 
between the public and law enforcement.